Well, Nehemiah chapter 9, would you take your Bibles and go there this evening, Nehemiah chapter 9, as we continue our journey through the book of Nehemiah. Uh, We're looking this evening at all 38 verses of the chapter, uh, but I want us to begin by just reading the first 15 verses. And so we'll be looking together at verse 1 uh, through verse 15 and then continue Uh, looking at the rest of the scripture as we uh, journey through our uh, thoughts uh, together. Uh, Nehemiah chapter uh, 9 and verse 1. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins And the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, uh, Benai, Cadmiel, Shebaniah, Bunai, Sherebiah, Benai, and Chaniah. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Cadmiel, Benai, Hashbaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahi said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God. From everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, the Girgashite, and you have kept your promise for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and you heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers, and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger 
and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. Well, Nehemiah uh, chapter 9 is a marquee chapter for a proper theology of the character of God, a proper theology of the depravity of man, and a proper theology of the sovereign grace of a merciful father. To, to be honest with you, it is worth much, much more time than what we have allotted to it this evening. I can certainly tell you that one day we'll come back and spend a great deal of time in Nehemiah chapter 9. But the setting here is another one of those great assemblies that we see here in the book of Nehemiah. In fact, chronologically speaking, it takes place only three to four weeks after the last great assembly back in chapter 8 when the people begged Israel to bring the book of the Lord so that they might learn the scriptures. And Ezra did just that. He brought the book. He read it. He expounded it. And the people embraced it with hearts of conviction, joy, and a commitment to obedience. Whether we call it a revival or a spiritual awakening or a reformation as we'll celebrate this, this Sunday, the, the Jews in Jerusalem were experiencing just that. All because they were eager to hear and study the words of God, the Scriptures. And now, this congregation of God's people have come together again. And the fruits of revival, the fruits of reformation are visible. For verse 1 tells us that they show up in the midst of a fast. That is, they're fasting as they come together. And they're wearing sackcloth, a symbol of humility and repentance and a genuine desire to seek after the will and heart to God. These people have gathered together as a congregation with great expectancy, meeting with God, hearing from God, being right with God. You know, there ought to be a measure of expectancy when we come together as God's people in our weekly gatherings. Routine is not the problem. Rigidness is the problem. A lack of repentance is the problem. A lack of desire for reformation in our hearts is the problem. But God has established a weekly routine by which we gather together as a congregation every week, week after week, week after week, and we enter not into it for routine's sake only. No, we enter into it with an expectancy. I'm coming together to meet with God. I'm coming together with God's people to have an encounter with God, to hear from God, to be moved by God, to, to leave here as a result of God's presence a different person than how I walked in. So here they are, assembled again on what I'm calling a national day of repentance. We have a national day of prayer in this country, uh, which in my opinion is more of a mockery of biblical prayer than it actually resembles a genuine pursuit of God. 
People from every faith and background claiming to call upon God, politicians using scripture, and they don't even possess any understanding in the knowledge of the Bible. We should actually rename it not a day of prayer, but a day of repentance. That would be good. A day of repentance where our nation's leaders would come together and publicly repent of our sin and renew our commitment as a people to seek the word of God again. That would be a great idea. Maybe I should run for office. But we're not going to get that as a nation. We're not. We do, however, have that as the church. It's the reason we come together again week after week after week to confess and repent of our sin while resting in the glorious grace of the gospel. Here's what that day looked like according to verses 1 through 5. They assembled again with humility and with expectancy. They confessed their sins as well as the sins of their fathers. Now, why did they do that? Why did they confess the sins of their father? It wasn't because of some theological dynamic that if we confess the sins of our ancestors, that somehow that will make them right with God. That's not the point here. The point is they didn't want to repeat the same mistakes as their fathers. So they're confessing their sins in an acknowledgement that, that we don't want to go that direction in our own life. And then they stood for three hours. They stood for three hours and read and listened to and studied the scriptures. And then they stood for another three more hours, confessing sin, praying together, and worshiping the Lord. A six-hour gathering. Can you imagine it? Now, I'm not trying to make more of this than what needs to be, but it is worth noting, church family, that for the second straight chapter here in the book of Nehemiah, we see a genuine pursuit of God, a revival, a reformation from a congregation that is not concerned about time. They are truly desiring an encounter with God. Three hours of listening to to the scripture, three hours of reading it, three hours of studying it, and they're so overwhelmed with what God has said to them, they spend another three hours worshiping, confessing, praying together. Why are we such in a hurry? Maybe it says a lot about our lack of revival, our lack of reformation, our lack of spiritual awakening. Well, let me give you the big picture of God tonight. The big picture of God from Nehemiah chapter 9 is this. He is a gracious and merciful God. That's the big picture. He is a gracious and merciful God. In fact, we see it noted twice. Look at verse 17. You are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful. We see it again in verse 31. You are a gracious And merciful God. This is what their worship was centered around. It was centered around their gracious and merciful God. And in our new covenant perspective, we could say it like this. Their worship was centered around the gospel. The gospel. It's a part of our mission as a church. Our mission is to glorify God and exalt his 
gospel. How do we exalt his gospel? Through the fellowship, the gathering of the church, and the preaching of his word. This congregation got together for the purpose of magnifying and glorifying and exalting a gracious and merciful gospel that is found in a God ready to forgive them. He is a gracious and merciful God. And we see that in three distinct ways. Right down number one, he is a gracious and merciful God in his perfect goodness. In his perfect goodness. Verse 6 shows us that this congregation erupts in praise toward their and the one true God. Notice how it begins. You are the Lord. You alone. And from there they ascribe to him the perfect and inherent goodness of his character. You're just going to have to follow with me from verse 6 down as I paraphrase this. They praise the goodness that he is as creator, his, his goodness as creator. You made the heavens. His goodness as sustainer, you, you preserve it all. His goodness in sovereign election, you chose Abraham. You chose Abraham. Look, God is good in that he chose us. It is good that he gave us the opportunity to hear, to know, and to love the gospel. We see this in his choice of his own people throughout the scriptures. It is his goodness. His goodness as a faithful God, you keep promises. His goodness in delivering his people, you saw our afflictions. His goodness to glorify himself, you made a name for yourself. His goodness in justice, you cast our pursuers into the depths. His goodness to lead us by a pillar of uh, cloud, by uh, you, you led us. His goodness to speak to this, you came down to Mount Sinai and you spoke. His goodness as a provider, you gave us bread, you gave us water, you gave us land. In other words, all that they're saying from verse 6 to verse 15 is, look at all that God has done. Look at all that God has done. Look at all that God has done for you. It's one of the hallmark purposes of our weekly gatherings as a congregation to come together and point one another to the perfect goodness of God. To remind ourselves of all God has done for us. Now remember, this is a congregation who are talking about the past history of Israel. And I want to ask you a question. How do you suppose that they knew all of that about God? How do you suppose that they knew he created all things, that he sustains all things, that he provided and delivered? How, how do you think they knew that? Well, because they were studying the scriptures. And when you study the scriptures, you grow in your knowledge of God. And as you grow in your knowledge of God, you cannot help but to respond in praise for who he is. Brothers and sisters, it is theologically important that we remind ourselves that not only is it true that God is good and he is good all the time, but that he is perfectly good. Perfectly good. He has always been perfectly good. He will always be perfectly good. He is the definition of goodness. And that needs to be reminded over and over again in our lives, in our hearts, especially in the darkest 
of days. We need to look back and remember about all he has done, all that he is, and all that he has promised to be. And that is perfectly good. Perfectly good. And his goodness is the visible expression of his gracious and merciful essence. I'm going to say that again. His goodness is the visible expression of his gracious and merciful essence. We can never even begin to touch the surface of the subject of the goodness of God. Stephen Charnick, 1864, began to write his notes on the various existence and attributes of God. He said, all the acts of God are nothing else but the outpourings of his goodness. God could be none of this were he not first good. When it confers happiness without merit, it is grace. When it bestows happiness against merit, it is mercy. When he bears with provoking rebels, it is long-suffering. When he performs his promise, it is truth. When he meets with a person to whom he is not obliged, it is grace. When he commiserates a distressed person, it is pity. When he supplies an indignant person, it is bounty. When he succors an innocent person, it is righteousness. And when it pardons a penitent person, he is merciful. All summed up in this one name of goodness. Goodness. Church family, be reminded tonight, no matter what you are walking through, what you are experiencing, that God is perfectly good. He is perfectly good. So he is a gracious and merciful God in his perfect goodness. He is also noted here in our text as a gracious and merciful God in our cycle of disobedience. He is a gracious and merciful God in our cycle of disobedience. That brings us to verse 16. After this wonderful expression of praise regarding the goodness of God's gracious and merciful character, verse 16. 16 begins by saying this. Look at it there. But they. But they. All right? From verse 6 to verse 15, it's all been about God, right? You are. You made. You led. You came. You delivered. You gave. You provided. But they. But they. I mean, after all you did for them, they, verse 16, acted presumptuously. They did not obey your commandments. In fact, they refused to obey. They were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. They stiffened their neck. They even went as far as to appoint a leader to take them back to Egypt. After all you did for them, this is what they did. They rebelled against you. They disobeyed you. They sinned against you. They weren't even thinking about all the things that they 
receive from you. You see, our response to this disobedience by God's people should not be how could they, but how could we? We are guilty of the same sinful rebellion in the midst of God's perfect goodness toward us. But look in the middle of verse 17. But you... This is the beautiful chapter, verse 16, but they, verse 17, but you, but you, but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Our God is a ready God. Oh, to be like Jesus, right? Ready to forgive. Full of grace and mercy. Patient. Abounding in love. And unwilling to forsake those who seek to forsake us. Friends, our God is a ready God and he is a ready God even when we continue to disobey him. And that's the next wonderful phrase in verse 18. He is a ready God even when, look at it, verse 18, even when, even when they had made themselves a golden calf. Verse 19, you in your great mercies did not forsake them. In fact, verse 20, you gave them your spirit. Verse 21, you sustained them and they lacked nothing. They didn't lack food. They didn't lack water. They didn't lack clothes. They even talked about how their feet were taken care of. They didn't lack shoes. Verse 22, you gave them the land that you promised them. Verse 23, you multiplied their children. Verse 24, you subdued their enemies. God was good. They disobeyed, yet God was ready to forgive. And even when they were building a golden calf, he comes and gives them everything in his intrinsic character. He gives them his goodness. And what was the result of all this that God did for them? Even when they disobeyed him, verse 25, they delighted themselves in the goodness of God. Is that not mine in your life tonight? After all God has done for us, yet we rebel, yet he's ready to forgive, yet we disobey, yet he is full of mercy, yet we walk away, yet he is patient, yet we're unfaithful, he never forsakes us, and even when we're building the idols in our life, he is still there, he is still loving, he is still ready to forgive, and here we are tonight, enjoying his great goodness when we have no goodness of our own. However, look at verse 26. Nevertheless, I wrote down here right beside nevertheless in my scripture uh, journal, here we go again. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and they rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back. They even killed your prophets. 
Yeah, the, the preachers who came to town and told them the truth, Israel didn't like it, and off with their heads. So verse 27, therefore, you gave them into the hand of the enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. So follow this. God's people sinned. He disciplined them by bringing them into suffering, the suffering of captivity. They cried out in repentance God heard them, was merciful to them, and delivered them. Lesson learned, right? No. Verse 28. But they did evil again. Again. And God abandoned them to the hand of their enemies. That means he put them back into the suffering of captivity. Yet... When they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven. And notice this next phrase. And many times, not just a few times, but many times you delivered them according to your mercies. Verse 29, you warned them. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules. Verse 30, many years you bore with them and you warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not listen. Church family, what we are seeing through this passage and throughout the reality of Israel's existence is the repetitious cycle of sin, distress, or suffering, Repentance and deliverance. And then after deliverance, you know what we see again? Sin, suffering, repentance, deliverance. Sin, suffering, repentance, deliverance. Sin, suffering, repentance, deliverance. Over and over and over and over again. Yet look at verse 31. Nevertheless, nevertheless, in your great mercies, I want you to really think about this, those of you who are God's people. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them, nor forsake them, because you are a gracious and merciful God. In our cycle of disobedience, our gracious and merciful God does not make an end of us. Nor does he forsake us. Instead, he stands ready to forgive, to restore, and to pour out his goodness as we repent and cry out to him over and over and over again. Nehemiah chapter 9 is as much about us as it is Israel. Because we are in the same cycle. Sin, distress, repentance, deliverance, same sin again, maybe a different distress. Repentance, deliverance. Have we learned our lesson? No. We do it again and again and again 
and again and again. And never once does God say, I'm done with you. I'm done with you. What a gracious and merciful God. He is a gracious and merciful God in his perfect goodness. He is a gracious and merciful God in our cycle of disobedience. Let me give you this last one. He is a gracious and merciful God in our seasons of discipline. He is a gracious and merciful God in our seasons of discipline. It brings us to verse 32. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm going quickly through these. Verse 32, now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship, they're talking about present hardship now, let not all the present hardship seem little to you that has come upon us. Verse 33. You have dealt faithfully. We have acted wickedly. How many of you, that's your testimony tonight. You have dealt faithfully. We have dealt wickedly. God, you've been faithful. I've been rebellious. Verse 35. Amid your great goodness, we are slaves this day. Think about that. Right here, breathing the air of your goodness, we're suffering. And why, verse 37? Because of our sins. Because of our sins, we are in great distress. See, the larger part of our text tonight has been dealing with Israel's past, but now, but now in this six-hour gathering, it's turned to the present circumstance. Here they are once again in that cycle of their fathers. Their sin has turned them over to a season of God's discipline on their life. Remember the context of Ezra and Nehemiah as we studied it together. They are currently being dominated by the authority of a foreign king, specifically the Persian king. And they have recognized their current season of discipline is because of their own sin against God. And that is how we go back to verse number one and we see why they're even gathering in the first place. They're gathering together in this national day of repentance because they recognize the reason for their current distress and they have come to confess their sins before the Lord. And that is exactly what they do. They come confessing in humility, fasting, they come to hear the scripture and allow its divine work to take place in their lives. And then, of course, they worship and pray together as a desire to turn back to God and his word. In fact, verse 38 says, because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing. A covenant to which you and I will come to next Wednesday evening. It's a covenant of confession, a covenant of repentance because of their conviction of faith that he is a gracious and merciful God. 
we often talk about here at Laurel, the necessity to preach the gospel to yourself every day. And that is a valid point for all of us. Perhaps you're gathering here this evening, you have so many questions about the gospel and salvation, and there may even be doubts in your own life about whether or not you've come to faith in Christ. We want you to continue hearing the message of the gospel, and we want you to hear it every day until you come to put your faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But at that moment of faith, does it mean the gospel is now a part of my past? No, the gospel is a part of my livelihood today, and it's a very big part of my future. We never move past the gospel. Because even as saved people who belong to God, chosen and elected by him, like Israel, the same cycle of sin takes over. And God wants you to know that his gospel has not gone anywhere. He has no intention of making an end of you. And he has no desire of forsaking you. He is a gracious and merciful God, even in your disobedience. And even perhaps in your present season of discipline from God. You say, how in the world is God's discipline on my life even now a symbol of his gracious mercy? Well, I don't have time to take you there tonight, but perhaps you'd read in Hebrews chapter 12 before you go to bed this evening. And you'll find out that God disciplines his children, number one, because they are his children. It's a level of assurance to know that God allows me to experience distress on account of my sin. And then you'll discover that his discipline is from the motive of his love for us, not his judgment of us. And then you'll learn that his discipline is always for the purpose of making us more like him. And that is why he stands ready once again tonight to forgive you of that same old sin that you keep falling into week after week after week after week because he is ready to forgive you. He is full of grace and mercy. He is patient. He's not going to forsake you. And he wants you to be more like him. And he will do whatever it takes, as long as it takes, to bring that victory in your life. Who is God? Among many things, he is a gracious and merciful Father. And may God help us to dwell on that today and every day. Let's bow our heads together for prayer.